Hey, Levi and Jenny here, and we're so excited that you're tuned into this message uh, from Fresh Life Church. This is the kickoff for the Spitfire Fund, and we're talking about how the British people all came together to build these airplanes, just like the children of Israel came together to build their tabernacle, and how we're fighting together from the whole Fresh Life family, online, every single part, no matter where you're tuned in from, we're dreaming together about what it could look like as we end this year to be positioned to see God do even more in 2021. That's right. We're so excited as a family and as a church to get to be a part of what God's building as we're giving above and beyond what we normally give. And to get to invite you to be a part of that is really exciting and super special. Yeah, regardless of where you're at and what that could look like. Uh, we talked about how the British people would know that they could give if it was only six pence, it could buy a rivet. If they had this many shillings, it could purchase so many screws or you had 2,000 pounds that could purchase a whole Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, but the whole plane takes every one of those pieces. And whether your gift this year end could look like $50 or $500, or maybe you could give a gift of $50,000 or more, whatever it looks like, it's about us all coming together with this vision. And people are going to be giving on December 6th, but you can participate at any point between now and the year end. And we just welcome the collaboration that's going to come together as we all dream about what the Spitfire Fund could look like in God's hands. God bless you, and thank you so much for praying about what your part can look like. This is the Spitfire Fund, and it begins right now. If you have a copy of the scriptures, join us in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but I want to start with uh, a title uh, of a message that I'm giving to you called A Wing and a prayer, a wing and a prayer. That's the way we talk about something that is like, we're trying it. I don't know how this is going to work, but we're just going to give it our all. We are coming in on a wing and a prayer. Not at all what you want to hear your pilot say over the intercom system as you come in on approach. Y'all, we're uh, coming down from 30,000 feet, and we are hopefully going to make it to the airport on a wing and a prayer. It's like, excuse me, what did, what did he just say? Yes, I would, I would like one more bag of peanuts, please. Just yes, right? Um, and I, we're going to look at, in, in the scriptures in just a moment, uh, what is unquestionably the first example of kickstarting something ever. I don't know how your experience has gone with Kickstarter. I've had good, I've had bad, uh, and I've had the ugly. The ugly would be the couch, for sure, right, Jennifer? The couch would be the ugly. Uh, I was so excited about this couch that I saw on Kickstarter. It was, it was different moldable pieces to it that could put together. You could take it upstairs easily. You could have it in different con configurations. It was a smart couch, uh, which was so exciting for the plugging in of devices. A smart couch, what are you talking about? I take my money, please. And so I did. And uh, I was one of many people who backed it. And then the time came when it was fully funded. And then the time came when it was supposed to deliver. I probably got 97 Kickstarter update emails with all the reasons why their factory in Taipei and this problem and Ralph. And then, you know, finally, it finally shipped. And it was like, I have shipment notification. And that was just the beginning of troubles, right? This was now, oh, the, the truck got broken into and your package was the only one that got broke. So, I mean, it was like, it shipped, but did it? Did, did, did it really? Because that's not how UPS usually rolls. And I don't think, and I mean, it was, I'm, I, I, I kid you not, I think a full 13 months after I was supposed to have it, that a broken and battered box arrived, or collection of boxes, I, sh I should say, arrived on our doorstep. And uh, 
long story short, the couch did not, none of the pieces assembled properly. There were things that were supposed to go into each other that were male to male that were, should, should have been male to female. And here's what the best part of all was what they meant by smart was that they had, they had, they had staple gunned a uh, ele- uh, extension cord underneath the bottom of this couch and an end of it, I'm not even joking, just stuck out the end of it, a big nub of uh, an extension cord. It was like, oh, you can plug anything you want into, into this couch. And it is, it is a smart couch. And uh, so my wife, that was the first experience she ever had with my foray into Kickstarter. She was not, shall we say, a big fan. And anytime I've mentioned the words, uh, she kind of gives me the look that's like, is it going to be like the couch? Is it going to be like the couch? We still have that couch, by the way. I fought tooth and nail with that company to get every piece that was supposed to come. And like, I refuse to throw it away only out of principle because of the anguish this couch has put me through. So it's in Lennox's room. All right, so... Um, we're going to see something that is Kickstarter gone right. And this is the, the spirit of, of a lot of people coming together on a project that is at the heartbeat of, of Indiegogo and Kickstarter and GoFundMe that has, has gone the world over. But this is really honestly where it all begins. This is Exodus 25. Just to bring you up to speed, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and they are going to eventually go into the promised land. But before they do that, God wants to cast vision to them. So their first stop is to Mount Sinai, the same place where Moses originally had God speak to him out of the burning bush. And it would have been an incredibly emotional encounter for him to hear God say, hey, remember when I called you here? Remember when you were a scared shepherd? And remember how I made some promises to you? And have I not brought you out of Egypt and delivered you and carried you on eagle's wings? And now as, as Moses comes full circle and now is standing in the, the good and the promises of God, God begins to tell him uh, and the people of Israel, by extension, how this new society is supposed to operate, how they're going to be a light to the whole world, how they're going to be a blessing to every single nation. And so one of the things that God has them do is prepare the tabernacle. And here's exactly how God says this building project is going to go. This is Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. Then he tells them some of the items that they're going to bring. And then in verse eight, he says, and let them with these things they've given make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern. Someone say pattern the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And then in the passages that separate uh, that uh, to what we're going to read next, he gives them more details about what the pattern is and what the things are that are going to be made from the table to the tent to the outfits the priests would wear to the basin to the altar to how the Ark of the Covenant would be. Every single piece and part, candlestick and, and, and part of the inventory of this tabernacle that they're going to make is, is described in, in, in excruciating detail. And then the offering time finally comes in Exodus 35 and in verse 20. This is now a whole 10 chapters later. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering 
for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. And they brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue or purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. Everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue or purple, scarlet or fine linen. And all the women whose hearts were stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil, for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. And Father, thank you for these verses. Thank you for these, these stirring stories of, of your servants who did such beautiful things, took such normal items and offered them to you. And in your hand, these little things all added up together to something that were far more than the, the sum of their parts and pieces. And I thank you that in the years of our church, the now almost 14 years of our church, we have watched you do the same again and again and again. Yeah. And we are grateful, we are eager, we are excited as we stand in this historic year, God, a crazy year, a stressful year, a wild year, an unpredictable year, but a year where we have watched you move in power and where you have proved yourself faithful and where we believe you are working in our midst and we're like never before. What is needed is the people who call themselves by your name to live without fear, but rather trusting in you and living lives of faith and beauty and service in this world that we know we live in and serve, but is not ultimately our home. So I pray you would help us to keep our hearts and minds on you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. amen. It was June of 1940, exactly 80 years ago this summer, that Hitler accepted the surrender of the nation of France in a boxcar in uh, in a moment that marked what was to be just about the end of democracy in Europe, with now a full third of Europe under Nazi control. Britain remained the final holdout, the final gleaming example of democracy in all of the continent. And Britain was in it alone. You see, America viewed, right or wrong, the war as Europe's problem, and so scarred and you know, traumatized by the effects of World War I, the Great War, they wanted nothing to do with it. They viewed it as Europe's problem. You guys got to deal with it on your own. We are just, we are, and though Roosevelt kind of knew and sensed and tried to awaken everybody to the, the growing danger that was Adolf Hitler, that was this whole Nazi empire that was brewing, that was building, uh, America was, for the time being, out and would remain out until the events of Pearl Harbor. 
And so here's basically all of Nazi Germany bearing down on England. And Winston Churchill uh, was the one who knew that England needed to stand up. What Germany wanted to happen, suspected would happen, and hoped would happen was that Britain would do the same thing as, as France had done, and that it would just be to surrender without a fight, and he could continue. Churchill knew that he had to stop Hitler, that Hitler had to be stood up to, and that if Hitler wasn't stopped from taking over England, both England and the United States and the rest of the world, in his words, would sink into the abyss. He knew that, that Hitler was a... A tiger, and you don't turn a tiger into a kitten by petting it. He knew that appeasement was an absolute fantasy. And so he knew that Hitler had to be stopped from taking over England, that under no condition must England surrender. And really, the whole fate of the world now was, was hanging in, 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 in this one question. Could Nazi Germany be stopped from taking over Britain? which Hitler was already drawing up plans for an invasion. He called it Operation Sea Lion, sea lion because it was going to be amphibious and aerial. And it all was contingent and predicated upon, could he achieve air superiority over the UK? And for that to happen, his Air Force, the Luftwaffe, had to be able to take out Britain's Royal Air Force. And that means that the only thing then ultimately standing in the way between uh, England and, and Germany, thus between Nazi Germany and the whole world hanging in the balance, was this airplane right here. The Supermarine Spitfire, which coincidentally had taken its maiden voyage and then its first flight uh, ultimately after, after production. This is the Mark I of a series of Mark uh, versions of it that were to be released on the day that Hitler entered the Rhineland and the world really began to see that he had evil stirrings inside of him that were uh, completely as opposed to everything he said publicly on his PR campaign about he, how he was just the nicest guy ever. And so this plane that was released that was faster and more agile, cl climbed quickly, went 400 miles an hour, had eight machine guns that really was released at the time when England needed it the most. It was what was standing in the way from Hitler achieving air superiority over England and thus the world descending into, hello, the abyss. If he could control the skies over England, he could take England out. Like the devil, Hitler knew that if you want to uh, get a chokehold, first you got to get a stronghold. And the stronghold is always that elevated position. And so he sought to control the skies over England. But fortunately, the supermarine Spitfire was unleashed in the skies. And it has been rightly called the plane that saved the world. The plane that saved the world. Because of this plane and the other planes that flew in the Royal Air Force at the time, uh, Churchill and the UK managed to keep Hitler at bay all throughout the 57 days of the Blitz, where the Nazis rained down day after day after day for 57 days in a row, bombs on London, the six months of the Battle of Britain, and basically kept Hitler from taking over. Even at times, it was like a, a, a razor-thin edge, but kept Hitler from taking over England. Thus, on June of 1944, just four years later, from British soil that had been kept from him, 
the allied forces were able to launch successfully uh, the Operation Overlord, which, of course, uh, eventually uh, led to the tide turning and Hitler losing all of Europe. But it started with this airplane, a plane that was, in its, in its, in its day, much more than an airplane. It became a symbol. It, uh, it caused people to experience the power of, first word we're going to write down today, vision. Uh, it was because of those who piloted this airplane that Churchill would, would talk about never before in, in any human conflict has there been so much owed by so many, and I think that ex- extends ultimately to us as well, to so few, the pilots who uh, risked everything flying these, these airplanes. Now, of course, what we're going to discover today as we, as we begin this conversation, and I hope you'll continue, I hope you'll be here for the weeks of this series because there's some, there's some amazing things we're going to learn and some amazing things that I believe that God is going to do in all of us as we undertake this journey, is the fact that, yes, this is the plane that saved the world. But what I love about it most of all is that it has also been called the people's plane, the spitfire, the people's plane. And yes, uh, much was owed to few, the pilots who sacrificed everything for sure, but also, there was much owed to many who were a part of it. Vision is the word I had you write down. Why? Like I said, this plane was more than a plane. This plane ultimately became a rallying cry. In my reading, in my research, and which has been exhaustive and amazing. I've never enjoyed anything more in my entire life than going through hundreds of hundreds of pages about this plane. I found many different words that people said uh, this plane meant to them in, in that day. Words like grace, gallantry, triumph, courage. This plane became a a symbol of sacrifice, freedom. This plane became something that you could look at, something that you could listen to, something you could see flying across the sky that stood for the British refusal to capitulate, the refusal to be bullied, that the people didn't even know they needed until they heard Winston Churchill speaking, and it, it put steel inside their spines, and they finally rose up and and, and they essentially realized that, that the ideas being, 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 being promulgated by Halifax and, and others were, were a complete fantasy, that, that to put our heads in the sand would, would do nothing but hasten the end. And we needed to stand up regardless of, of the cost, regardless of what it took. And this plane sort of essentially spoke to that great desire that, that was within them, latent, that began to come out. It's been said that this plane, more than anything, though, spoke of defiance. Defiance, And I think that is exactly what uh, began to rise up in the hearts of the nation of Israel as God, through Moses, called them to build this place, this, this moving place, the tabernacle, that would be where they would meet with God until they got into the promised land. And eventually, under David and Solomon, there, it would be formulated into a temple. And then under Jesus, the whole meaning of it would, would become clear. And now in these days that we're living in, we're able to look back and see all of it was pointing to the church. All of it was pointing to the bride. All of it was pointing to what Jesus wanted to accomplish at the cross. And what is that if not a picture of defiance? You see, to enter in, this is my favorite thing about the tabernacle, I think, that I've come across in these days of research preparing my heart for the series, is that to enter into the tabernacle, you had to come in from the east. God gave a very clear direction that they were to set it up. Every time they would set it up, they would, they would do so to where anyone entering into the tabernacle, the priest coming in to enter into the most holy place where, where blood would be brought in as a sacrifice. Of course, this is pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. You had to do so entering from the east. What that means then 
is that the high priest and all those who were wearing the garments that were made according to the specification that was given, that were representing the people as they stood before God, they had to enter from the east. Therefore, they were turning their back on the rising sun. And what is that living in a fiercely pagan civilization, if not an act of defiance? For all those that surrounded them, that they were told to not be like, they not only had graven images, which the Israelites were expressly forbidden to ever make, but they also worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. They worshipped the stars. In this society, it was normal to worship, to turn to and worship and adore and ascribe godlike properties to the sun as it rose each day. But this was to turn your back on the rising sun and see what the sun shined its glow and glory upon. And that is the one who made the sun, who made the moon, who made the stars, who brings them out by name. It's to worship the creator and not creation. And what is that if not an act, the supreme act of defiance? And when we as his people who who are called by his name, when we choose to not worship created things, when we choose to not worship money, when we choose to not worship, I'm going to touch on some toes here, some, our, our political candidate, when we choose not to worship a man, when we choose not to worship a system, when we choose not to worship our success or our influence or anything on this earth other than what the light shines upon, and that is the glory of God, and his name is Jesus, what are we doing? We're, we're committing an act of defiance, a defiance of what is normal here on this world. We're choosing to live by the pattern of heaven and not the pattern of earth. And that's what's so important to remember as we look at the word pattern used twice. Make this after the pattern. For there to be a pattern, there has to be an original. If something was copied, you're, you're copying it from a master. Moses was told to make this as God gave it to him according to a pattern. The pattern was the pattern of heaven. What this is ultimately, this vision, is living for heaven's pattern and not earth's conformed molds, earth's conformed norms. That's what Romans says. Do not conform yourselves to the pattern of this world, but instead live your life with your mind renewed by the word of God. And so that's what these people were a part of, and they were stirred by the vision. What was the vision? The vision was, let's not live like the surrounding people. Let's not live like every other person. You just came out of Egypt where Pharaoh worshipped the moon and worshipped the sun and worshipped the, the frogs and worshipped the Nile River and worshipped. And how did that work out for him? It didn't work out so great. So let's turn our back on the rising sun. Let's worship the one who created us and put breath inside of our lungs. And let's, as he told us to, build a place where we can meet with him, a place where his presence can dwell. And I believe that's the dream that stirs our hearts as well. Let's live for God's glory, and let's work hard to create a place. What place is that? This, today, that place is a YouTube, a YouTube stream. What place is that? That place is in buildings. Yes, that place is in small groups. That place is in gatherings. That place is in every time our broadcast goes out on the television show and fills up direct TV boxes and goes into, goes into to, to podcasts that people can listen to and be sent to a friend. That, 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 that constantly is what we're striving for, a place where people can learn that their greatest dreams can come true, not from chasing the rising sun, but turning your back on the rising sun and looking at the one the sun shines upon, a vision a vision to be stirred by, a vision that in the days of the Spitfire, that defiance, they, they believed, they were stirred by the idea that this airplane could become, would become, listen to me, a shield for our homes and a terror to our enemies, a shield to our homes. 
That was what they said the Spitfire became. Because every time these German bombers would roar in the sky during the 57 days of the Blitz, where for 57 days in a row, bombs dropped on London. And all of the six months of the Battle of Britain were in all, just in the city of London alone, not counting the rest of of the United Kingdom, 30,000 people perished in London from bombs falling upon them. But every time the bombers came in and their hope was to take Britain out, the Spitfires would would roar to life. The Spitfires would show up. And and not only would it give a sense of comfort and calm and stability to the Brits who would hear the sound of these these, these Rolls-Royce engines in the sky, but it also gave terror to the adversaries. The Germans had no answer for it. They had no plane, not even the Messerschmitt 109, their best fighter. Nothing could handle in a dogfight. Nothing could perform like the Spitfire. And so it was not just a comfort, a shield to our homes, but it was a terror to our enemies. I'm believing that as we are, are, are stirred by this vision of purpose that God's called us to, not only is it a terror to the enemies against us, and I'm not talking about any other people. I'm talking about the enemy who is the devil. I'm talking about his demons. I'm talking about all those who would rally against us and come against our families, come against our marriages, come against our purity, come against our sanity, come against our peace. I'm telling you, there are enemies who are coming against us. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And I'm telling you, as we gather in the name of Jesus, there is strength, a shield for our homes, and there is a terror to our enemies. The Germans would even lie if they were shot down and end up making it back home. And they were asked, like, oh, what were you shot down by? They would be like, it was a Spitfire. And they would go, there were actually weren't Spitfires in that area, according to our records. Like, oh, it was. I'm sure it was. Because it gave, like, if, they, if they were shot down by a hurricane or a plane, it was like, oh, well, that plane's not that great. But if you were like, I shot down by a Spitfire, they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's tough. You know? So they would literally make up that they were shot down by it because they became so afraid of the strength of this plane, the plane that saved the world. Second word I want you to write down is the word contribution. Stirred by the vision, the natural thing to flow out of that was people to make contribution for that to happen. And what I love about the contribution in history uh, is that these contributions were free will. And that's a word that we actually came across in our text, free will. It was above and beyond. What am I trying to say? No one had to. No one had to give anything. People chose to give, and they chose to give freely and willingly. Moses actually said, um, this is a free will offering. What is he trying to say? The same thing I'm saying to you. On December 6th, no one has to do anything. It's all of us completely choosing, if we're stirred, if we want to, to give something above and beyond. And that's exactly what it would be. Now, up until this point, there had already been laid out tithes. There had already been laid out the things they were going to give that was going to be throughout the year, the you know, systematic uh, schedule of giving, of offerings and sacrifices. That was already laid out. So this is now him saying, hey, above and beyond all that normal stuff, this is a dream. Does anybody want, anybody want to be a part of it? So go ahead and think about it. No, 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 no giving on the spot. No pressure right here. It's not like we've locked the doors. Everybody's going to give something or we're, you know, no one's getting I mean, that's not the heart. He was, saying, he was saying, just go, think about it. Whatever God puts on your heart, that's what you want to give. And I love that. And that's been our pattern. Our pattern has been, hey, we all normally give. And that's how we do the ongoing work we're doing day in and day out. But as we would uh, in the coming days want to seek to ask God, what do you have us to do above and beyond that? That's where we get to participate, and that's where the contribution comes from those whose hearts were touched. The text uses two different qualifiers about about those who gave. God said, you should come back and give if, A, you have a stirred heart, or B, you have a willing spirit. Don't you love that? And so everyone came back to give whose heart was stirred, whose spirit was willing. You could put under those two phrases the the words, because they line up, roused and ready, roused and ready. 
Who's roused and who's ready? That's who brought a gift. Who's roused and who's ready? That's who engaged. Who's roused and who's ready? Meaning I'm not asleep. I'm awake. I'm aware. I see what's happening. I see the need. I see what's happening in our world. It's dark and shadow clouds are looming. But guess what? We have the light and the light of the world is Jesus and the light of the world is in us. And we're here to shine the light. I came to say, are you roused? Are you ready? Come on, are you roused and are you ready? In this world, we need people who are roused and we need people who are ready. We need people who are awake with the light of Christ shining from their eyes and we need people who are up on their toes. I'm ready to do my part. I'm not sleeping at the wheel. I'm not, I'm not going to miss my opportunity. The baton has been handed to us. It's, it's our time to shine. There's going to come a day when they're going to talk about what we did while we were here and I'm telling you, let's make it count. Let's get after it. Let's make a contribution. Let's do something. Are you roused and are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? I would tell normally, like, touch your neighbor and say, are you ready? But this is COVID. So it's like just whisper in your heart to someone, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And that's, that's so cool. Um, how it all started, the Spitfire funds. This is amazing history. Um, there was a, a man who was the minister of aircraft production. The minister of aircraft production. And his name, are you ready, was Lord Beaverbrook. That's the best name you're going to hear today. Lord Beaverbrook, the minister of aircraft production. And a man named Harry Oakes came to him. And Harry Oakes was a millionaire, uh, had made his money in a a mining empire uh, in Canada. And he came to uh, Lord Beaverbrook and said, uh, so stirred after after, uh, Dunkirk and all the, the, the people began to be aware of how important these planes were because some 300,000 British soldiers would never have been able to be evacuated if it weren't for the fog, the weather that day, and for the Spitfires that were coming in and, and taking out these, these Messerschmitts and other planes that were like shooting fish in a barrel as they were all just there on the beach waiting to get taken home by the civilian fleet that came in. Um, and basically, um, uh, people began to be like, man, these planes are amazing. And, and tragically, the, the Spitfires, as powerful as they were, were so badly outnumbered by the Luftwaffe There was 2,600 planes that the Germans had. And the British uh, only had, I I think the number was 650. So they were just four to one outnumbered in in planes. And so Harry Oakes came to Lord Beaverbrook and said, "Um, how much does it cost to to buy a Spitfire? And he said, about 5,000 pounds. And on the spot, Harry Oakes wrote a check for 5,000 pounds and said, please buy one more. At least there's going to be one more Spitfire uh, against Hitler in the sky. And when word got out about what Harry Oakes had done, someone else said, well, I can't write 5,000 pounds, but I can write 50. And they wrote a 50-pound no and, and gave that in. And as word began to spread, a story was being told, like you know, John Krasinski, some good news edition, World War II style. Uh, people began to be like, this is incredible. What if we opened up a Spitfire fund so people where we're at could contribute too? Because people were roused and they were ready. And they began to say, what can we do? And so they began to give and give and give and give and give and give. And Spitfire funds popped up all over England. And by the end of this entire thing, let me just fast forward to the end, 13 million pounds came in to the Spitfire funds, which in today's currency would be about 650 million pounds as you adjust, adjust for inflation, which allowed, which was the exact amount needed to purchase, wait for it, 2,600 Spitfire airplanes, which continued to be updated. And so it's an absolutely heart-touching story. But what was the story? The story was people touched by a vision making a contribution. But I don't want you to think, 
well, I can't write a 5,000-pound check. I I can't even write a 50-pound check. So how could I possibly be a part of anything great? Because as we move towards the season of seeing God do more in our ministry, more in our hearts, more in our world, you might feel like, I I just, it's been so hard for me. Everything's so difficult right now. And that's why the third word is participation. Participation was across the board, meaning it wasn't like you had to have a lot to do a lot. Here's what they began to make lists of what it takes to put another Spitfire in the sky. Yeah, like I told you, 5,000 pounds to buy a whole plane. But they said, and they wrote down, if 2,000 pounds comes in, you can purchase just the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. Or if you get 40 pounds, you can purchase the petrol tank. Let me translate that, the fuel tank. Uh, If you have eight shillings, you can purchase a spark plug, a single spark plug. If you have five shillings, we can buy 60 screws. And if you only have six pence, you can purchase a single rivet. One little girl, eight years old, sent 15 shillings into her local Spitfire fund. And she wrote and enclosed a note with it that said, I will send more when my jar is full again. And kids in homes all across Great Britain had jars and buckets throughout their homes. And into those jars, they were putting whatever they could raise to go to the local Spitfire fund which is one of the reasons we've always fought for our kids to be a part of this, this year-end tradition. Uh, we encourage every family to, as, 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 as you participate, don't forget about your kids and the fact that it can mobilize them and give them a great strength and stability. And I was talking about this, like, oh, my, my kids are going to be begin saving. My daughter, Daisy, interrupted me and said, Dad, actually, I've already been saving. And, uh, and my daughter, Clover, said, uh, and you also did not get permission to tell the couch story and how it's in my room. I just have to clear everything with their representation uh, to make sure everything is sorted in these days. Uh, but what I'm trying to get you to see is that it's not as though to be used by God, you have to have the qualification of possessing a great deal. In fact, so many stories in scripture that you and I cherish are about people giving what they had when it wasn't a lot. I think about uh, the five loaves and two fishes came from the little boy. That's a spitfire fund contribution. I think about David and his stones that he gathered from the brook, giving willingness to give that to God. And that's how God took that giant out. The widow who fed Elijah in the famine, she just had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. But God uses what we do have, what, not what we don't have. And this offering, as we give it, it's not going to be because God touched two people with a lot or a couple people with a lot. It's going to be all of us together, coming together with, with what we do have in our hands. Because we tend to focus on what we don't have. But God's going to say, what do we have? What do you have that you're willing to watch me use in great ways? What do you have that will cause you to uh, give vent to a, a ready and aroused spirit to see God do something more? And that's how the tabernacle was built. Yeah, there was gold. You might have said, well, that was gold. Well, yeah, there was. There was a lot of gold. In fact, uh, biblical archaeologists estimate that to build the tabernacle today would cost an entire ton of gold and three tons of silver. But didn't you notice there was also thread? Didn't you notice there was also cloth? Didn't you notice there was also olive oil and dye that made things purple? So you might not have gold, you might not have silver, but do you have thread? Can you be a part of of helping fund the olive oil or the acacia wood? Participation can happen regardless of what you possess. One of the best giving stories in scripture is the Macedonians giving. The Macedonians were celebrated by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 when they gave not out of their abundance, but they gave out of their lack. And you can see on the screen what Paul said to the church at Corinth, when he was praising the Macedonians giving, he said, for even during a season of severe difficulty, hello, 2020, and tremendous suffering, they became even more filled with joy. How about roused and ready 
filled with joy. For from the depths of their extreme poverty, super abundant joy overflowed into an act of extravagant generosity. Church, I would be lying through my teeth if I didn't tell you that as the months began to prepare and I began to sense God stirring in my heart this series and these days, if there wasn't a little voice going, Levi, are you kidding me? How can you ask anybody to give right now? It's been such trying times. So many people in the church are, are, are financially strapped or at, at the best or at the worst, very devastated. But God once, again, once and again just convinced me and just overwhelmed me with the reality that it would not be helping those hurting to withhold the opportunity to be a part of allowing a great joy to overflow in your life. For it is often in the times when we feel the least prepared that God wants to do the most through us. And, and he's not calling any one of us to do what we can't. He's calling every one of us to consider what we can, our participation in this matter towards this vision. And then fourth and finally, the last word I want you to write down is the word identification. Because that's what the people got to walk in in Moses' day. They got to walk in identification. You see, if you, if you read the intervening chapters between 25 and 35, one of the cool things you'll notice is that the high priest was to wear 12 special stones paid for by the people. Every single one of those stones came from a family or came from somebody or came from uh, a specific situation. There was a story for each of it. I wonder if it was the, the wife and the husband in the back going, like, we should give this, 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 this stone. And we go, oh, you can't give that. Are you kidding me? Like, I just know because of my wife and I's conversations throughout the years of us preparing to give towards the year end. And the conver- God told you to give what? But when the giving was done, and whether you paid for the thread that made the pomegranate at the skirt of his hand, which spoke of the Garden of Eden being restored, by the way, the pattern of heaven once again coming back down, all, all of it had a significant meaning. Even the wood covered with gold. Wood covered gold, that's Jesus. Human, but God. Divine, but, but also a man like us. It all spoke of Jesus. But when, when they came in, when the high priest came into the tabernacle representing the people, those 12 stones, we're told, was one for every single one of the tribes. Reuben, Issachar, Naphtali, Gad, Simeon, Benjamin, Asher, Levi, Dan, Joseph, Judah, Zebulun, or Ephraim and Manasseh, if you don't want to include Joseph. But I think Joseph was represented by his boys for sure. That meant that whatever tribe you were a part of, you were identified. Your name was a part of the story. You were a part of making this happen. And so it was in the days when Kickstarter defeated the Nazis. They were a part of it regardless of what they gave. No matter what they contributed, every time they heard a sound of a spitfire, they, they knew they had ownership in that. People from all over the world were a part of it. In fact, uh, a spitfire fund in, in Ireland led to 17 different airplanes being purchased. And they all were a part of it. And they got to name the planes. That was the coolest thing. Once your chapter or or your club uh, fully funded an airplane, you got to pick what that name was called. And they would put the name of your town or the name of your company, a biscuit manufacturer who made, and everyone, you know, the biscuits are cookies in England. One biscuit manufacturer fully funded a bunch of plants, so he got to name them after his company, and towns were, were naming them. And you'd see the Bradford, you know, Spitfire, the Liverpool Spitfire. They were named after the people that got to do them. People would get to name them after their, their, their they had a brother who died fighting in France in the war. They would name the plane after their brother. It, it, it really went gangbusters in South America. It was actually amazing. Spitfires were purchased as chapters rose up in Paraguay, in Uruguay, in Brazil. A chapter opened up, and the president's wife joined, and they 
paid for nine Spitfire planes to be bought. In Argentina, a Spitfire uh, fellowship rose up and they purchased 12 planes outright. In Scotland, they, they purchased a plane and they named it Red Lifty after the light in the harbor that guides the fishermen in. And when they returned after dark, this just began to go all over the place. But all the people who were a part of it, they got to feel a sense of ownership in that. And what I love about the story of Fresh Life Church is that when we look back at these massive milestones, I mean, is there a dry eye in the house thinking about 21,700 decisions for Christ now? That we are at a point where in, in these 14 almost years of church, that we've seen 21,700 people register their decision. That just means after they raised a hand or prayed a prayer or were touched by God at a service, they actually went on to the webcast and typed their name in. We don't report just people who, who made the decision and raised their hand but didn't do that. We, we actually just keep the number of those who actually self-identify and give us their name and address. But I know for a fact there's more people that have made decisions for Christ than that because our very own online pastor, Kevin Guido, the day he got saved, he never registered his decision. He never told anybody. He just prayed the prayer. But you know what? It stuck and it took. And here he is changing God. And how many of you are thankful for Pastor Kevin and just his contribution to our church? Absolutely amazing even though he's such a punk. And I just am constantly just like, what is the matter with you? But I love him so much. And he's been with us for all these years. But, but, but we know that there are people who have been impacted, and we don't know the story. We know that for the last seven months, when we have not been able to have staff or volunteers in Deer Lodge Prison, but they've allowed us to send DVDs into the prison, they're watching those services. And who knows what God's doing in these days of desperation in that penitentiary. So all I'm saying is, whatever God's doing, however big it is, we're part of all of it. And that's what I'm praying God would grip you with. And in the coming days, we're all going to be praying about, every one of us at the church, are going to be praying about what's our contribution. Is it an earring? Is it a bar of gold? Is it 5,000? Is it eight shillings? But I'm asking for every single person, a part of the Fresh Life house and online family, to pray about what we can give above and beyond our normal ties, that we are happy to give every single week just to continue to, to watch this normal work that's happening continue to, to happen. But to say above and beyond that, what would? And we're going to be, trust me, you're not going to want to miss it next week, rolling out and telling you more about what the Spitfire Fund initiatives are going to be specifically. We're so excited about all of that. Stay tuned. But on December 6th, my prayer is that over and above our normal giving, that every single one of us as a church would give sacrificially, doing our part to participate in what God will do supernaturally that we will get to walk in. So for now, my prayer for you is that you would say, God, honestly, what do you want me to give? I'm not going to tell you uh, what to give. All I'm asking is that you would ask God what he would have you to give. If he tells you nothing, give nothing. But I would just ask that this week and in the coming weeks, you would give honestly the time and space in your life to say, God, what would you have my contribution to be, be to make a difference in this day? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for what you've done, for what we have watched you do. We're so excited about how we even believe this year so many of us who gave towards the 2020 giving at the end of the year have been held up even ways we don't even understand by the way our hearts are, are, are tighter on a connection to heaven because of what we did. We set ourselves up for what was going to be a far more difficult year than we knew, a far more difficult start to a decade than we could even really comprehend. And God, we're so grateful. I've thought so often of, of the way that those gifts have gone before us and given us strength, God, the power of that generosity that changed us and marked us and the way you've used it to do incredible things. 
And so we're so excited at the advent of this as we break that bottle of champagne over the bow of this, this season for our church. We're excited. We're eager to see what you're going to do through the gifts that come together, through the multiplication that you love to multiply. Each of us doing what we can, being faithful in the way you're going to use it to do so much through us, to be a blessing like you intended for your house to be built, that tabernacle that spoke of bread, that spoke of light, that ultimately points to Jesus. And so we know you're continuing to give bread and give light to the whole world. We want to see you do it through us. But God, we also are eager to see the stretch, to see the change, to see the difference that's going to come inside of us, inside our homes, inside of our lives. The way it's going to mark our just even the spirit and atmosphere of our homes and hearts and lives to have heaven be at that priority place as we end this year. While the whole world freaks out and fights and divides, God, let us be marked by your name and let generosity rise up. And while we're praying, if you're watching and you've never yet made a decision to follow Jesus, maybe you've been religious, known things about God, but you've never had a moment in time where you invited him to come into your heart. I want to give you space and time to make that all important decision. You see, I grew up in church knowing things about God, calling myself a Christian. But then there came a moment just before my freshman year of high school where I realized I knew a lot about God, but didn't know him personally. And I became aware of my sin like I never had before. I began to sense almost like my heart beating out of my chest. And this, I just knew I needed to get right with God. I felt guilty. I felt alone. I felt scared. And I felt like I needed him. I sensed he was knocking at the door of my heart. And so I made that decision to open up my life to Jesus, to ask him to come in, to forgive me, to make me a new person. And he did that. He met me there. It's the best decision I've ever made. And if you've never yet said yes to Jesus, I, I pray this would be the moment that you would make that decision and he would begin to make all things new inside you. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life, say it with me. I'm going to ask the church family to say it with us. God will hear you and come into your heart. Say this. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. But because of the cross and the resurrection, I believe you can. I turn from my sin and myself. I turn to you. Thank you for new life. I give you mine. In Jesus' name. Amen.